Welcome to Growth Untold, the podcast where we dive into thoughtful conversations and insightful discussions with world-class people, all with the aim of inspiring, educating, and empowering our listeners. We are thrilled to have you here with us on this exciting journey to explore the diverse stories and the ideas that have the power to shape the world for the better. Welcome to Growth Untold, the podcast. Joining us today is someone who personifies resilience, innovation, and social impact. Hailing from St. Thomas, Jamaica, he embarked on a transformative journey to Toronto, Ontario, leaving an unforgettable mark on the Canadian business landscape. As the founder of Kingsdale Advisors, he played a crucial role in major transactions, positioning the company as a leading consultancy advisor. In 2020, our guest launched the Black North Initiative, a powerful force in combating racism and providing business opportunities for Black talent across Canada. Joining Dragon's Den in 2021 as Canada's first Black Dragon's Den investor, our guest brings his extensive experience and pedigree and entrepreneurial spirit to aspiring business leaders. His autobiography, No Bootstraps When You're Barefoot, pays homage to his roots and serves as a testament to his enduring spirit. Without further ado, let's welcome entrepreneur, advocate, author, and dragon, Wes Hall. Welcome to the show. Hey, Wes Hall, welcome to the show. We got Man. a dragon on the show. This you is gotta, amazing. Listen, I, I got to hang out with you guys more often. I love that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta, you got to just, you got to come behind me, you know, when I travel and just announce me just like that. Here he is. Wes, <laughs> I'll, I'll come as your pump man. Just let me know. I'll come as your hype man. Love you guys already. Love you guys already. We're going to have a lot of fun with this interview. Amazing. We're off to a great start. Well, thanks again, Wes, for for jumping on. There's a lot of things that we want to talk about today from everything that we already covered off in the bio. But what we typically like to do is to kick off in just the early days. And Mina and I both have, you know, listened and read your book. Um, and we would love to dive that into more detail about that in a bit. But what we want to talk about maybe is just the early days coming from Jamaica. Yeah. I don't know if you know, my both my mom and dad are actually from Trinidad and Tobago. Oh, look so, at that. Yeah. So I felt, you know, I related to a bit of the stories of the sugar cane and the plantation. Yes. But wanted to talk about your specifically your journey from Jamaica to Toronto. It's super inspiring to yeah. hear trials and tribulations, everything you went through. So I wanted to see if you can take a moment to reflect and talk about so, some of those pivotal moments. Yeah, no, I happen to Alex. So, so if you, uh, uh, you know, if you go on my, my social media, my Instagram account, a few posts ago, I put out by the outfit that I wore the day that I left Jamaica, right? And uh, I remember it was like some brown shoes with some some brown pants, like kind of for brownish pants. And I had this uh, short sleeve shirt on. I was a bright eyed 16 year old, right? And I, and I remember somebody said, okay, we're going to take a picture of your last day living in Jamaica. And it's amazing because I never really thought you know, one day I'm going to look back at that picture and go, man, could you fast forward 30 years? What what you would accomplish in this country? Never thought of it for a second. But I just remembered that I was so excited. That I was so excited because I'm like, I never thought I would ever leave Jamaica, not because I didn't like Jamaica, but because it was deep in poverty. And I never really thought that I would leave poverty. And so I remember when the paperwork came 
when my dad made the application and it came and it's like, okay, you're going to actually get to leave. I never thought it was real until I actually went on that Air Canada plane and I sat down in my seat and they announced that we're about to depart. And I'm like, yes, I am going to Canada. That was it, man. It was like, it's, I still remember it like it was yesterday and I still have goosebumps when I actually think about the whole experience of getting here. And I came here, landed at Pearson Airport. My dad and my stepmom and my my half siblings picked me up. We drove to Scarborough at Malvern and I got out and I went into this house that they had. It was a nice subdivision. It's a middle-class uh, kind of living. And I'm like, this is the life. I knew from that moment that I would never, ever fail in this country, period, full stop. Well, that's incredible. so talk about talk about your dad um yeah. and and you know he left and he brought you to canada talk yeah. about that in your life when he left how did you feel did you know he was he was gonna come back for you did, you know what were the feelings you were feeling up until you know you were 16 years old yeah so so when my dad left when he was 25 years old he left jamaica so think about you as a 25 year old kid and you've left, you have, my dad had another child that was a few years older than me. And then he had me and I was one when he left. So I never thought that I would ever see this man again, because you got to appreciate sometimes uh, in that culture, which is unfortunate, you have uh, these men who father these kids and then they move on and those kids will never see them again. It happens uh, too often in our community, unfortunately. So I just felt that I was one of those statistics whereby my dad would never come back. And, you know, so when I started living with my grandmother and stuff, like all these siblings uh, of mine uh, were living with her, but all my cousins, a number of my cousins were also living with her because the same thing happened to them. Their parents abandoned them literally, and they ended up living with my grandmother. So I thought that would be the case for me until 16 years old, this man kind of, kind of go, Hey, uh, I, I have this kid in Jamaica and I want him to live with me in Canada. And, and I, res, you know, I respect my dad so much <laughs> like to this day, you know, because he didn't have to, he didn't have to, he was 25. He made a mistake probably in terms of getting my mom pregnant. And, uh, and all those years later, he remembered his obligation to me, his child in Jamaica. And in fact, it wasn't just to me. He actually brought his, his other kid, his daughter, up here. So he came here, got married, had five kids in Canada, was raising a family. And then he said, the other two that I, uh, that I had when I was a kid, I'm going to bring them over too. And he did that. And, and that was wow. a lot of risk because at the time my dad brought me over in Scarborough, a lot of the young people who came from Jamaica were just going in and out of jail. Like literally they were going in and out of jail. And his friends were telling him, leave that kid in Jamaica, leave that kid. He's going to embarrass you in Canada, leave him. And in spite of that, he brought me here. So I yeah. am forever grateful. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing just because he already had five, you know, yeah. he's bringing two more. He's adding to his costs, his expenses, his responsibilities. Now he's got seven kids in Canada that he's got to take care of. So uh, just from that story, I can 
just imagine what kind of guy your dad was. And and listen, he was also a factory worker. You got to understand that, right? My my dad and my stepmom were both working at factories. My dad was working at a glue factory that was making glue. My mom was working for Ford Electronics on an assembly line. My stepmom, that is. And, uh, you know, so they weren't like rolling in the money. And now they had five kids and then they have, they bring this two, there's seven of us now. How are you going to look after all these kids with, uh, you know, when you're working in a factory, he just made, they just made it happen, man. They just made it happen. And, uh, and for that, I'm grateful. And by the way, they own their own home, which taught me a lot later on in life. Uh, because as you know, as soon as I was on my own, the first thing I wanted to do was to own my own home. First thing. And, and, and I did that when I was, um, I think when I was about 25 years old, 26 years old, I bought uh, my first house. Wow. Okay. Well, t- okay. So talk to us about that. So you come to Canada when you're 16, you've mentioned in other interviews before that back in Jamaica, I mean, you didn't have running water, you didn't have electricity. Um, you know, you, you call it a shack, a shack town, I believe. Right. Yeah. Um, and so talk to us about from 16 to 25, you buy your first home. How, how did you do that? So what was that journey to get to that point there? Yeah. So you uh, see, you're just plugging my book, man. No bootstrap when you're barefoot, because if somebody want to see that journey, uh, that's the journey. It was an impossible journey, quite frankly, because I came here at 16, got into high school. And then my senior high school, I moved out from my dad's place. So I moved out and finished high school on my own. The problem, the, the reason why I moved out was my dad was a very, very strict man. Now, why was he so strict? Remember I told you that his friends were saying this kid is going to get into trouble and their, their kids were getting into drugs and going in and out of jail. He said, I am going to bring this guy over here, but I'm going to clamp down so hard on this guy. You know, it's going to be like a vice grip that's, that's going to be on him. After school, I went to Lester B. Pearson High School. School finished at 3.15 and we were walking distance from the house. And it takes about 10 minutes to walk if you're walking at a decent pace. And at 3.25, my dad would call to make sure that I'm home from school. Okay. And he did that practically every day. I wasn't allowed to go to my friend's house after school to play, not even on the weekends. I wasn't allowed to hang out with anybody. I was just, it was just, it was just a vice grip that was on me, right? And, um, and when I was in Jamaica, I was living on my own because, you know, you go back into the story. I went, I left my grandmother's house when I was 11, lived with my mom. She was verbally abusive, physically abusive. And at 13, my mom threw me out. So 13 to 16, I was living on my own in Jamaica. I was fending for myself. I was working and I was sending myself to school. I was my own man between 13 and 16. My dad got me here at 13, at 16. And then I was like a kid again, right? You can't do this. You can't do that. And I'm like, I'm not a kid anymore. I've been through so much between 13 to 16. I don't want to be treated like a child. And he was treating me exactly like the sheltered kids that he had at home. And I felt that I didn't need that type of life anymore. So I literally packed my bags and I left and I didn't even tell my dad I was leaving. I just walked out the house. And uh, the wow. next morning he got up to a breakfast with the family and he said, go get West guys. He's sleeping in. And they were looking at each other because they knew what happened. He didn't know. And they said, he, uh, he moved out last night. 
And, uh, and that was it. And that was, uh, my dad said, dude, if he's on his own, he wants to be on his own. He's going to be on his own, not a penny from me, not a support from, and in fact, none of my siblings were able to, were allowed to talk to me because he thought it was a bad influence. So for at least two years, none of my siblings were able to talk to me. I couldn't go visit my dad. He wouldn't talk to me and I just got to figure it out. So two years into the country, I got to go, I got to make a life of my own. I got to finish high school. I got to work while I go high school and I got to make my, uh, make my life. So I'm glad I did that because at the end of the day, it probably wouldn't have given me the hustle that I have today. And so you stayed in the same high school. So yes. he, he could have technically, he, he technically could have had access to you, yes. but he understood that you were kind of breaking that relationship or taking a boss pause from that relationship. Yes. And so he was like, all right, you go out and figure it out then. Yes. He kind of cut me loose, man. He's like, Hey, you, you think this country is easy? It's like a typical Jamaican parents, right? Alex, you know, the Trinidadian, <laughs> you know, you know, part, right. The Caribbean parents are not easy parents, man. They're, they're oh. hardcore parents, right? <laughs> so like yeah. if you're, if you, if you're independent, independent enough and there's a ditch in front of you and you want to be a man and you want to walk, I'm going to let you walk in that ditch and figure <laughs> it out how to get out of that ditch. Right. That's just how it was. Right. He knew that I was going to get through a lot of hardship in this country right? because he's been there. He came here at 25 years old. He had to struggle. He had to ex he experience racism. He experienced all kinds of things that I was naive to. Like all I saw was this great country, you know, land of milk and honey. And all I saw was the beauty. I was in high school. My buddies were, you know, rebellious and they were getting away with being rebellious. And I'm like, I want to be like those guys. And my dad knew that I was going to go through a lot of pain and he let me go through it. And eventually what happened when he saw that I was not going to go to jail, when he saw that I was working hard, when he saw that I was sending myself through school and I was working, he said, okay, this kid is, is going to be okay. And that's when he welcomed me back and not, not to come back home. Because once you leave a Jamaican household, you can't go back. You're done. Right. If, even if today I want to go back home, my dad's going to remind me that, by the way, remember that you left on your own, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I didn't kick you out. You can't come back no matter what. So, but when he, once he saw that the relationship got rebuilt and, uh, and my dad and I are really tight, uh, today. Mm. You know, what's, uh, what's funny is that there's, there's two things in particular as a sidebar before we get into to the incredible book that you wrote, but, uh, two things that made me laugh was just the, I remember in the book, it talked about the pronunciation of photography and <laughs> you, you used to, people used to make fun of you the way like, we used to make fun of our dad, that the way he said calendar and cucumber, he said, Kalinda, he said, cucumber, and could you just walk us through the old or the pronunciation you still do of photography. You know, it's so my brother, I, it used to drive me crazy, right? Because I thought I was using my best Canadian accent, right? And, uh, and I said, and I used to say photography. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, you know, and he's like, that's so funny. Say it again. I'm like, what do you mean? It's so funny. Photography. And he's like, and then this, you remember the Blacks commercial on TV? And then yep. he would say, Blacks is photography. Right. Because the commercial <laughs> blocks is photography. And then I'm like, you know, let me record myself to see, you know, why this guy's so think it's so funny. And I realized that I'm not breaking down the words. And I kept on doing that. So then I looked in the mirror and I started saying, 
photography, photography, pull it out, photography. <laughs> and then I recorded it and listened to it and listened to it. And then I go, and then other words start to, uh, you know, I start to use it for other words. But even when I was in high school at Pearson, man, these kids used to get a kick out of me uh, putting my hand up and, uh, and respond and giving an answer to the teacher. They would be laughing, say it again, say it again. I'm like, I'm using, I'm speaking English. Nope, it's very broken. <laughs> so Wes, I, I wanna just continue this amazing story just so we, the audience gets an idea of, you know, the West Hall at 16 to the West Hall today, one of the dragons on Dragon's Den, one of the most formidable entrepreneurs and investors in Canada. So you're 16, you said you bought a house at 25. What did you go off and do to be able to afford that house? <laughs> okay, so um, not not a lot, by the way. So my first, <laughs> when I was in high school, I used to work at this restaurant called Hurley's Restaurant. And that's what allowed me to get out uh, from uh, from my, my my dad's place. It was, um, it was a place in Scarborough, Markham and Ellesmere, I believe it was. And uh, it was a... Um, Markham and Shepherd, and it was a place where it was a, a hotel, at like a traveler's lounge, a large hotel, and then there's this restaurant connected to the hotel. And I got a job to work in as a dishwasher in a hotel in in the, in the restaurant. That was a terrible job, you know. You know, I, the restaurant was really really busy, and the dishwasher was very small, and they they use extremely hot water. And I had no gloves and I had to be taking out the dishes to, you know, turn it around, right? Really, really quickly. The water was up to my ankle because there was not proper drainage in the kitchen. And that was my life, right? And I did that like crazy, but I saved my money. I, I always put money in the bank, put money in the bank, put money in the bank because I was living at home. So and my dad wasn't one of those people where he wanted anything from us. He, he taught us about savings. He taught us about all those things. So I put everything that I had in the bank. So when I left, I had enough money to rent a, a, a hotel room for a few nights in that same hotel until I found a rooming house to, uh, to live in. And I remember paying $400 a month for the rooming house. And, uh, but, but my second job after that was uh, working for Maple Lodge Farm, catching chickens. You know, I mentioned that in the book. Yeah. And it was just, you know, I was the only place I could look after high school uh, was you know, in the general labor section in the newspaper, if you know, back in the day in the newspaper, they would have jobs listed yeah, and they would yeah. have the category of jobs and, and stuff. The only section that I could go to was general laborer, meaning that any idiot could do this job. That's the only part. So I went to this chicken, uh, this, this job came up, uh, through my buddy at this, uh, chicken factory, Maple Lodge farms. And I just, I just went there and I'm like, this was horrible. This was just terrible. And I realized that this is my life. I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. And I go, no, I can't do that. Then I start to take college courses, uh, in the evening while I worked uh, during the daytime and again, saving money, saving money, saving money. And I got married at 22 years old to my wife, Christine, and she had the same attitude. She had a family of eight, eight, eight kids in her family, very humble family. Her dad was a police officer, blue collared kind of family. Mom didn't work. And we ended up getting married. She was 19, I was 22 years old. And, uh, and we have that same attitude of just putting our money away and saving. So we actually had enough in the bank to do, put a down payment on a house. And we found this house for $112,000. Okay, 
112 grand and we stretched to pay that uh, that 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 down payment and we bought that house and that's it because i we both knew that home ownership was critical i don't know why it was critical but we just thought it was critical and in fact she was the first person in her family of the eight kids uh, to actually bought a home and I was the first in my family, my dad's side of the family to actually bought in my entire family, quite frankly, even the ones in Jamaica to actually buy, buy a home. Wow. So you got to this point still hustling. I, I mean, listen, I think even successful people like yourself, you're still hustling every day. So every day. I don't, I, so I don't want to say, let me reward it. You were doing general labor job to get to that point where you bought a house but before we go into some other things that we want to talk about, how do you get from the point of being a general laborer to a dragon? What what <laughs> shifts, what, what happens there? What decisions do you make to take you from that point of your life to a whole different level? Okay, man, here's the deal, right? Every single job that I've gotten over the years, I didn't know how to do everything, every single job. And, um, but I've, I'm fortunate enough that I've met people along the way who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. They saw potential in me. I didn't see the, that potential. And those people kept on giving me opportunities that I didn't deserve. Because if you look at my resume, I didn't have anything that indicated that I was qualified or capable of doing that job. The only thing was their belief that I can do this job. And that's why I champion diversity, equity, inclusion today. Because a lot of people have the credentials, they have all the check boxes, the degrees and all that kind of stuff, they're not getting the opportunity. And when they do get the opportunity, people say it's because of diversity why you get the opportunity. Well, I am a perfect example of somebody who didn't have any qualifications to get the opportunities that I got over the years. I got them and it led me here today. The potential that people saw in me led me here today. So when I got this job in the mailroom of a law firm right across the street from my office here now, okay, I've never been on Bay Street before. I didn't even know what Bay Street was because I grew up in Malvern. Malvern is where I spent that. I came at 16 until this point. And, you know, I didn't know what entrepreneurialism is. My exposure to entrepreneurialism in Malvern was the patty shop down the street and the barber shop that I go to get my hair. Those are entrepreneurs. So if I want to be an entrepreneur, I open up a patty shop or open up a barber shop. That's it. That's the extent of it. When I left to get this opportunity to come interview for this, I didn't even get interviewed. Somebody called me up and said, hey, um, my buddy got this job. He didn't want it anymore. And he said, I have this guy who's looking for work. And, and he gave them my number. They called me up and said, would you like a job in the mailroom of a law firm? I'm like, sure. And they said, okay, you're hired. Come Monday to sign the paperwork, okay? When I came Monday to sign the papers, Commerce Court West, they were on the 14th floor. My, my ears popped going up the elevator. Never been in an elevator. Never been on Bay Street. I'm like... But what, guess what happened? It opened my eyes to a completely different world. Okay, completely different world. Now, I was delivering mail to lawyers and all over the place, right? 
They didn't ask me if I knew how to read. <laughs> they didn't ask me anything. They just said, we are looking for someone who's going to deliver mail. Okay. And they go, you fit the bill. But it's my second opportunity that was important because then I went into the law firm. Then I, they told me about taking courses to become a law clerk and get move up into the firm. I did that. I went to George Brown College, took some courses, became officially a law clerk. But then I went for a job at Canvas Global. It was the biggest broadcaster at the time. And I was interviewing with the general counsel, the man in charge of law for Canvas Global, the biggest broadcaster and the head of human resources. And here I am, this young dude, okay, who is walking in there uh, thinking that I'm going to get that job when I had no qualification to do that job. And I sat there and I went through the interview and they were impressed. I don't know what impressed them, but they were impressed. And then the gentleman called me two weeks later, the general counsel, and said, I want to have drinks with you. I'm like, drinks? What is that? Then next thing you know, I knew it's a kind of a business thing whereby they want to, you know, see what you're all about, right? I didn't know what that was. I didn't know the idea behind that. So I said, sure. Now, I didn't drink at the time, you know. And I went to this restaurant and he, uh, he started talking. He said, what's your background? Tell me about your background. Again, if it's today's, if it was today and somebody asked you to tell you, I would have answered differently, namely because people generally use that against you. How you struggled. So I started telling the man about living in Jamaica with my grandmother, going to my mom, how I got abused. I get thrown out of the house at 13, lived on my own from 13 to 16, came to Canada, lived with my dad. We didn't get along. Two years later, I got kicked out. I, I left and then I finished high school and I started working at this job and that job and all that kind of stuff. The man's eyes got bigger and bigger and bigger as I'm telling them <laughs> way too much. Okay. Way too much. But but ultimately, he listened politely. And like a week later, he called me back and said, I have a job offer for you. And he offered me that job. Nothing that I told him suggests that I was capable of doing that job. Nothing. Other than the man, and I talked to him years later, he still is a friend to this day, by the way. And he said, Wes, I saw the hunger in you. I saw the struggles you went through and I saw how you overcame them. And I go, you're not going to fail in this job. I didn't know how far you were going to go, though, he said to me. But I knew you weren't going to fail. I'm going to do my part to make sure that you don't fail. And that was it, man. That, made, that changed my life. And, and you, said, you said something earlier um, that really resonated with me. Because being an actor and being in the public eye, I do really resonate with what you said earlier. But I want you to expand on it. You said usually or today's day and age, if you were to tell that story today, people tend to use your struggles against you. Yeah. What did you mean by that? My, my meaning is that when you tell people that you're from poverty, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, there's a problem there. You know, uh, you don't know how to act a certain way. You don't know how to behave properly and so on. You're not properly, you didn't have a proper upbringing. When you tell people that you're physically abused by your, by your mother, they're like, you're damaged goods. So you're going to create problems. Maybe you have some mental issues that comes with that. And you're going to bring that into my organization. I don't want to be a part of that. You know, so all the things that I did along the way were showed that I should be damaged or scarred. And as a result of that, um, it's going to be used against me. So you, you just don't say it. You know, when you think about it, even to this day, if you tell somebody that you're suffering from mental issues, 
right? Anxiety, whatever it is that you're suffering from. Do you think that people are still welcome into that? Oh, thank you so much for sharing that information with me. They have a little bit of apprehension about, okay, how do I deal with them now? Like it's a ticking time bomb. What do I do? What do I do? And so, but our society should appreciate the fact that we're not all perfect. Like the world is an imperfect place. And as a result of that, there's going to be people among us that are a part of that imperfection in the world. And we have to take them as they are. And we have to appreciate the fact that there's times when we have to cuddle them more than we have to cuddle other people. And there's times when we have to give them a little bit of a break more than we have to give the break to somebody else. And I keep on going back to that diversity and inclusion thing is that if you're always excluded from something, whether it be because of your background, because you're an immigrant, because of your race, because your gender, and you're always excluded, somebody has to give you a break in order for you to be included. They have to give you a break. And if yep. you want to call it lowering the bar, if you want to call it affirmative action, whatever you want to call it, somebody has to give you a break when you're from the background that I'm from in order for you to get there. Okay. If you went to Harvard and if you graduate from Harvard, nobody has to give you a break because they beg to have you in. They beg. It's when you're not from those backgrounds that somebody has to go, I'm going to give you a break. And what does that mean? It means that normally we wouldn't give this opportunity to you because of all those disadvantages that you have, but I'm going to change my views on that. And I'm going to give you that shot. That's what happened to me. And that's what led me to Dragon's Den to this very day. Now think about that, right? You know, Mina, you, you, you know what it's like to, to act, right? I'm not suggesting that I'm acting when I'm Dragon's Den, right? I don't have a script that I've, it's unscripted content. So I say what's on my mind, right? Uh, but I never, I wasn't, I've never been on television before Dragon's Den. I've never been on television, right? When I started Kingsdale, I've never started a company before in my life. And that's why I said every single job that I've had from the moment I got that job in the mailroom until this day, <laughs> I, I don't have the resume to say that I know how to do that. So let's say they were, when they were cast in Dragons then, if 10 people in the room and nine of them had television experience and I have none, for them to give me that opportunity to be in Dragons then, they have to make an exception because I have no experience. They have to be prepared to work with me because I have no experience. But guess what? They have no idea how good I could become by giving me that opportunity. And, you know, and I got on the show for the first time. There's one segment of the show that had 26 million views the day after we aired the show. Never happened in the history of the show between me and this guy and us back and forth. He's African. I'm Jamaican. He's black. I'm black. He's an immigrant. I'm an immigrant. He wants to invest in a company. Nobody would believe in him. I did. We start crying together on the show. 26 million Canadians go, we love that. Who benefited because they made an exception? The show benefited. Yeah. Canadians benefited. They saw something that they didn't see before. And that's why sometimes we just got to go to get somebody in. We have to make an exception. We don't have to necessarily change the rules or lower the bar. We just have to make an exception. And that's what bring new people into situations that they've never been before. 
Well, Wes, I got to say, first of all, you were built for television. So if I was producing the show, I would have known that straight off. But I'm glad you said what you said, because I think honesty in today's society often gets punished instead of rewarded. And I've definitely been on the other end of that. I think all of us have. But I, I think you're right. I think as a society, we need to start rewarding honesty, supporting people, sticking up for people, instead of just punishing them for coming out and saying what other people want to say. Like, like there's times in my life where I've come out and said things that I think other people wanted to say, other people wanted to hear, but were afraid to do so. And you get punished for it, like you said, you know. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I know Alex wants to dive in to some of your life mantras. So I'm going to pass it off to Alex and uh, let him let him dig deep into that. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. I think after reading the book, no bootstraps when you are barefoot, um, you know, one big takeaway and just from hearing you riff off about your story and the journey to Dragon's Den, Wes, is that you are a, you know, you have a powerful mindset and you're extremely observant. Every little thing that you experience in life was a, was a lesson. And I think that was what I took away from the book is you were abused. So what's the lesson here? You got that, you got to witness and observe your grandmother taking care of 10 dependents, 10 under their zinc roof. What was the takeaway? Everything was a takeaway for you. And that is, I think, a huge raw skill set that has propelled you in your career. Something I think everybody can take away from this. But and one thing I want to talk about in particular is the two years of abuse from your mother. Mm-hmm. When by all stretches of the imagination, that's supposed to leave marks and to and verbatim uh, in your book, Dark Wells of Pain to Slip Into. But you made a conscious effort to not be defined by that. So how did you develop this EI or this emotional intelligence over time? Like, it seemed like you had it when you you came out of the womb. (laughs) You had this EQ. (laughs) Was this like a nature versus nurture? Uh, Can you just walk us through where you developed this? You know, first of all, great question and, and great points as well. You know, whenever we see people behave in certain way in society, there's two things that we can take from that. One psychologist would look at their behavior and go, it's because of what happened to them, why they're behaving that way. We see people committing criminal activities. You know, people abuse their children. They go, he was abused. That's why he's doing it. His father was a thief. That's why he's a thief. But, but I don't subscribe to that because there's people in your life that aren't thieves, that didn't abuse other, you know, you. And you can either look at the people who did the bad things to you and emulate them, or you look at the people who did good things to you and emulate them. I was very grateful that my grandmother was, uh, I spent, you know, my mother abandoned me when I was 18 months old. And my grandmother took me in at that time. I spent 11 years with that woman, seeing the sacrifices, seeing the industriousness, seeing how she was treating me as a child. And I was not going to let two years of abuse by my mother turn me into this person who would become an abuser. I was, I wanted to emulate the kindness that I saw from my grandmother. And that's why I give her so much credit to this day, because the hard work that I saw when this woman was chopping sugarcane and she took us to the banana plantation to work with her because we weren't, you know, at the age where we, we could go to school. When I was piling up coconut with her, when she came home at six o'clock in the evening 
and it's dark and she had to make dinner for us. And then she had to make sure that we go to the river to get water so she can wash her uniform and iron them and get them ready for the next day. That's the stuff that I saw for 11 years of my life. And I'm like, this woman died in poverty. She died working like a slave, literally. And I go, I need to honor that somehow. And I need to honor that with my own life and the way that I live my life. So all the things that I, that I saw that happened in a negative way to me that put so much stress on this poor woman, I go, I'm not going to put that stress on anybody else. So when I, you know, as you mentioned, 10 grandkids that she was raising at the time, well, I'm not going to have kids out of wedlock and leave them for somebody else to look after. I'm going to make sure that I have one woman going to marry her if I could going to have all my kids with her and I'm going to stay with her as long as I possibly can. Okay. So, so those kids won't be a burden to somebody else. The second thing I'm going to make sure is that when I get married to that woman, because my stepfather used to beat my mom to no end. And as a child, I was so helpless at 11, 12 years old, so helpless. I couldn't do anything about it. I said, I'll never put somebody else through that trauma. I won't put my kids through it and I won't put another human being through it. So I'll never abuse the person that I love, that I live with. And because I was abused by my mother, because she was being abused by somebody else, I said, I'm not going to repeat that cycle by abusing my kids. So all the things that I saw that was negative in my life, I said, I am going to make sure that I never repeat that cycle. And it ends with me. I have my wife and I've been married for 31 years now. We have five children together. And uh, I just, I just, I just emulate what I saw in my grandmother. You see, my grandfather used to be an alcoholic. He died in uh, early in the early 1970s. And when and and because he was an alcoholic, and he wasn't an, wasn't an abusive alcoholic, he was just an alcoholic. My grandmother kicked him out. Think about how strong you have to be in the 70s in rural Jamaica with all those grandkids, and you kick this man out of the house who is a breadwinner in the house and you go, you're not going to be around my grandkids because you're a bad influence. And she never took on another man until the day she died at 97 years old. Not another wow. man was in that house, man. How could I have an example like that? Forget about money and wealth and career. How could I have an example like that and fail as a moral human being? How could I? So yeah. I had the best role model to, to, to show me what life should be like, no matter how much hardship is thrown your way, never be resentful, but try to be as kind as you possibly can because life is hard and you don't make it harder by how you deal with all the struggles that come in front of you. And that's what my grandmother taught me. And, um, and she died in poverty and, uh, and I forever, I'm forever grateful for, for the lessons that she didn't sit me down and teach me those lessons, but she taught me those lessons by her example. And that's the best that's way to a, teach. Yeah. That's such an important lesson and something Alex and I talk about a lot. It's easy to become resentful when things don't go your way. It's easy to look at the negative all the time instead of the positive. And one thing that the most successful people like yourself on earth always say is they look at the positive, they focus on the positive, they, they cut out the negative in their life as quickly as they can. And that can be hard. Sometimes it can be hard. It can be very difficult, but I think that ultimately 
is a diff, a massive difference maker of looking at the things that are negative in your life and cutting them out, whether that's bad habits, whether that's bad people, whether that's, you know, bad environment, whatever it is, try to look at those things and cut them out because they're going to hold you back yep. from, from moving forward. Another thing, another thing you've said that, um, I personally struggle with is, You've said before that there's a line between arrogance and confidence. And some people like myself, I think, are so afraid to cross that line to becoming arrogant that they never come close to their full potential of being confident. How do you do it, man? How do you do it? How do you cross <laughs> how do you how do you, you know, just balance that line so well and achieve your full potential when it comes to confidence without crossing the line over to arrogance? You know, you, first of all, you have to be a self promoter and you got to be comfortable doing it because, you know, when you're underserved, nobody promotes you because they don't want to take a risk on you because they're like, oh, Wes is so great. Wes is so fantastic. And then all of a sudden you're not as great. You're not fantastic. You know, so you have to promote yourself. But how do you promote yourself with a? Because that's one of the worst thing that you can do is promote yourself because people think it's arrogance, Right. Look at how he talk about himself or he talked about himself in the third, in the third person, you know, like he, he, other people should pat you on the back and tell you how good you are. But if you don't let people know that, you know, like when I went into that job interview that I talked about at uh, Canwest Global, I, I, you think my attitude in that job interview was that I really don't think I'm capable of doing that job. And I hope you take a chance on me and, and give me this job. I had to pretend in spite of what my resume says that nobody's going to do this job better than me. There's nobody that's going to do this job better than me. That's confidence. Now, somebody could look at that and say that's arrogance as well. But when I get that job, I better deliver. I better deliver because yes, he want to take a chance on me because I sold him on the fact that, you know, my resume suggests that I don't have the job, but I sold him on the fact that I can do the job in spite of what my resume said. And he bought into that. That's confidence. Okay. Now, can I execute? Yes, I executed. I executed brilliantly. I was the best person to this day, he said, that ever did that job. Best. Okay. I delivered. Now, if you are walking down the street with certain swagger, there's nothing wrong with that. People appreciate people with swagger. People gravitate towards people who have confidence in themselves and their ability. If you walk into a room and you go into a corner and you just stay in that corner by yourself, that's a person who has self-doubts. That's a person who does not have confidence in themselves. And that's how you behave. Now, if you walk into that room and you have some nice Christian Louis Vuitton shoes and you got some a fancy suit on and you walk around and start shaking hands with everybody and said, hey, I'm Wes, I'm, I'm here. Everybody's going to look at that dude, <laughs> okay? They're not going to look at the dude who walked and went in the corner. They're going to look at the guy who walked in with confidence in the room. If you're an investor, if you're an entrepreneur, for example, and you want to get investment, do you think that if you if the pitch was, well, you know, I set up this company. I think it's going to be okay. I think it's going to be okay. I need for you to invest by 20% of my company for a million dollars. And I think we're going to be okay. I think we're going to make money. I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain we're going to make money. Just, just give me the million dollars. That investor walking in and saying, I set up this business. That's going to revolutionize this industry. 
revolutionize. And as a result of that, you give me a million dollars, you're going to be the happiest person alive once we crystallize that investment in five years from now. Okay. And you're going to be begging me to get into my next investment. Who would you invest behind if those two pitches come in front of you? Right. So you have to have confidence in order for you to win the confidence of other people. If you so have no confidence, you're not going to win the confidence of others. So it sounds like you're saying you you can be as confident as as you know as you can as long as you deliver. That's really yes. what the the line is for you. As long as you deliver, then there's really no such thing as as being arrogant. Am I getting that kind of right there? Yeah, I, I think, you know, yes, there's arrogance and you, you can be arrogant, right? Like, you know, I can walk around thinking I'm the best thing since sliced bread and nobody can touch me and, 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 and all that. That's a little bit of arrogance, right? You know, you have to, you know, people know the difference though, right? I, and that's why they say it's a thin line. People know when you're arrogant versus when you're confident. People do. An arrogant person, you can't tell them anything. They know everything. They know everything and you start saying something to them. They go, Shh, no, no, I, I don't need to hear from you. I got this, right? A confident person takes advice and listen to everything that's around them and they use it to their advantage. They listen, they have an open mind. Uh, they, they, they collaborate with people, but they ultimately make a decision. So there could be 15 people that they collaborate with and ultimately that confident person goes, okay, I got it now. I'm going to make a decision on that. That's confidence. Arrogance is when there's 15 people in the room and you don't want to hear from all 15. And you go, I'm going to make a decision. And especially when you make a decision, right or wrong one, it doesn't matter. It's still arrogance that got you there. And a lot of people who display arrogance, their success doesn't last for a long time because they're, you know, they're, they are a detriment to their own success because of their arrogance. That's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put yeah. it. One one thing I, I want to segue to is towards the Black North Initiative, mm -hmm. uh, an important initiative that you launched in 2020. Um, you, know, you know, it's something focused on creating positive change. I'm curious, just from taking on this initiative, what inspired you to do this? We spoke a little bit about it in the beginning, but would love to just hear a little bit more from your perspective on what inspired you to do it. And what are some of the progress and the impact you've made since its inception? So the, the Global Mail uh, report on business came out uh, yesterday with their, the, the, it says 40-ish larger-than-life personalities who shaped Bay Street over four decades. So the magazine's been around for 40 years, and they report on all kinds of stories in terms of the financial stories that's going on on Bay Street. And they named 40 people that completely changed. They, say, they call them larger than life people that changed Bay Street. I was on that list up in the 40, okay? Congratulations. Thank Congrats. you. Think about how far I came. We talk about the journey from Jamaica, from Scarborough to Bay Street, to the mailroom, to now be named in 2024 as one of the 40 people who completely changed Bay Street, right? And, and I'm the only black person on the list. Now- wow. You know, it's, Bay is a big place, right? Uh, but again, if you're going to use the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion, I shouldn't even be on that list at all. I told you that all the jobs I got, I, I wasn't capable of doing those jobs. 
And uh, and yet here I am, one of the most one of the forty ish people who larger than life people who change Bay Street. Every time I go into these rooms, I saw nobody that looked like me in those rooms, right? And that's why I talk about confidence. When you when you got to look, put yourself in my shoes, for example, and you walk into that room, and I walk into that corner because there's no black person in that room. And I walk into that room and I just kind of shrink back. Let's say it's a, it, let's say these the companies brought me in to give them advice on something. 50 people in the room. I'm the only black person there. I'm not saying anything. Do you think that people would believe that I belong in that room? No, I'm because of, of, of me thinking in my own head, oh man, I'm the only black person here. What are they going to say? What are they going to say if I start saying something that I didn't say the right thing and all this kind of stuff? Um, I'm not going to perform well if I think like that. And if we go back to that confidence thing, I walk into that room, I saw that I'm the only one. My job is to make sure that when I leave that room, everybody goes, why don't we have more West Halls in this room? I have to intentionally walk into that room with that level of confidence, not arrogance, that level of confidence. Because if I walk into that room other than with that level of confidence, it's going to affect all the people who come after me. In fact, they're gonna, it's going to confirm to people why people like me don't belong there because I have nothing to contribute, nothing to contribute. And so I kept on seeing that. And I go, I got to do something. I got to mobilize all these people that have built the solid relationship with over all these years, influencing Bay Street. And let's try to get them together to make a change so that whatever barriers that existed within their organization, that they identify what those barriers are to potentially prevent people like us from being in that room. And some of those barriers could be completely artificial. I'll give you an example. In some companies, to ultimately become the CEO of the company, you have to have P&L experience, profit and loss. You have to run a department that either make a profit or have a loss. Meaning that you have to have the experience of running a business that can make money. Now, who are you going to take? you know, to get there. Well, if you're the legal counsel or general counsel for the company, that's not a PL department. If you're the head of HR, that's not PL. So let's say you hire a black person as your HR manager or a black person as your general counsel. There's a very strong likelihood because that person doesn't have PL experience, they never rise to the level of being a CEO of a company. But do they know how to run a good department? Clearly they do, but they don't have PL experience. Now that's artificial. So let's say you remove that barrier. Then it doesn't matter what department the person come in into your company. They now have the ability to a clear path to become the CEO. And they don't have to go through, okay, I'm not going to be a lawyer anymore. I'm not going to be an HR person anymore. I'm going to complete the change career to lead me to a path where I can become the CEO. Another example. Some of these, like especially financial services uh, uh, companies, they say to be on my board, you have to be the former CEO of, uh, of a Fortune 500 company. Well, how many black people 
have been CEOs of Fortune 500 companies in this country? How many women have been CEOs of Fortune 500 companies? How many dis people with disability? How many indigenous people? So just that barrier, that artificial barrier that you put in place completely disqualify a whole bunch of people, including me, because I've never been the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. So any company that has that policy in place, they could not have me as a director of their company. Now, I'm, look at all the things I've accomplished in my life. And I'm not capable, I wouldn't be capable of contributing to any of those businesses. Think of a bank, for example. Where'd they get their money from? Moms and pops like you and me, average people, okay? They rely on their deposits and they get mm -hmm. deposits and then they use it to loan money and do all these things, run their businesses. Am I capable of advising how to deal with moms and pops? Am I capable of dealing with uh, advising how to deal with uh, Canadians, uh, new Canadians? Am I capable of dealing with if they want to merge? Am I capable of dealing with reviewing a financial statements and giving them advice on it? What does that have to do with me being a former CEO of Fortune 500 company? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. It's a barrier that's there that shouldn't be there. And that's why I ask all these, these leaders to do, look at these barriers, see whether or not they exclude people, then remove them, and you're going to see the floodgates open and your business is going to be so much more successful as a result. So that's what Black North is all about. In terms of success, we're extremely successful as, a, as an organization. The work is not easy. You have to love it to do it. Uh, but when we look at the impact that we're making in society in such a short period of time, I am just absolutely stunned at just, you know, when you're intentional about something, how you don't have to uh, wait a generation to see change. You got to appreciate the fact that I was on a plantation. I'm 54 years old. Up until I was 11 years old, I grew up on a plantation. And now I live in a very nice neighborhood in the city of Toronto, one of the 40 most influential person on Bay Street. And that happened within a generation. So we don't have to wait for two, three generations to make change. We just have to be intentional, work hard, get some breaks along the way, and we can complete to change society. I think that's a that's a great way to, to end the podcast there. Um, Wes, I think the the living example that you are is proof to anyone listening today that you can completely change your life and there shouldn't be time limitations on it. There shouldn't be, uh, you know, eth ethnic barriers. There should be no doubt that anyone listening today with the right drive, with the right confidence, with the right motivation can make something incredible out of their life. And that's what Growth Untold is all about. We want to tell the stories of people that you may not be familiar with, you may not know their full story. Uh, people like Wes who have went from, like he just said, living on a plantation to moving to Canada, to moving out of his dad's place two years later, to building the life that he's built for himself. Um, Wes is living proof that you can definitely chase your dreams and achieve whatever it is uh, you want to achieve. So Wes, thank you so much. We want to be respectful of your time. Uh, thank you for, for taking the time. Thank you so much. You guys have been fantastic. Wes. And uh, thanks for uh, creating the platform for, uh, for guys like me to tell our stories, to build so many other people up. 
course. Of course. That's what it's all about. Thank you again. Good luck on Dragon's Den. Uh, everybody tune into Dragon's Den. Wes Hall, the first black dragon on Dragon's Den. I know you're going to do some amazing things and invest in some great companies. Fantastic. And for those who want to know more, you can follow me on Instagram, King of Bay Street. That's where I'm at. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Thank you, Wes. Yeah. Thanks so much, Wes. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Please subscribe, share, and join the journey of Growth Untold. Don't miss a single nugget. Hit that follow button now on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Instagram. 